Let's ask God now to help us with his word. <clears throat> uh, true and living God, our almighty creator, we thank you for all the good things you bring into our lives. Good conversations, good music, good skills. There are so many good things. But we pray now in your mercy that you will give us the best thing, relationship with you through your word. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us both to heed its warnings given to us in love and to know the hope it gives us in you, the merciful and gracious God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when you think of God's sovereignty, uh, that is his rule over all things, that he is the one in Paul's terms who works out all things, everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, are you unsettled or comforted? Do you see it as a threat or a source of hope? In Jeremiah 18, we are given a vivid image of our God's creative sovereignty over the affairs of nations and people, the potter at his wheel. And we will see it's both, threat and hope, always. Threat to the presumptuous and to those who will not listen, and hope, no matter how sure their condemnation, to those who listen and turn back to God Hope even for sinful nations like ours, if they will listen and turn from their evil. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house, and there I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand, so he made it into another jar as it seemed right for him to do. The Lord sends Jeremiah down to the potter's house to observe him in his work and what he sees is an interaction between the potter and the clay through which the potter works to reshape the flawed clay to achieve his purpose, to shape a usable jar from the lump. We see a responsive interaction in which the potter changes what he's doing as he senses how the clay is responding to his working, a responsive interaction guided by a constancy of purpose. And the Lord doesn't leave Jeremiah to guess at the meaning of what he's seeing. He makes it clear by his word. House of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. Now that is a great statement of creative sovereignty one which has echoes of the creation story where the Lord God fashions the man from the dust of the earth. The Lord is the great creator and continues to be so throughout history. And the potter's is an absolute sovereignty, absolute rule over the clay. There's no consultation. It's always the potter's purpose that's achieved. There's never an outcome that he does not will that does not conform to what the Lord intends to achieve but it is an interactive, responsive sovereignty, adaptive to the response of the clay under his hands, adaptive of the, to the response of Israel 
to the Lord's words. There is change in what the Lord does, shaping and reshaping with constancy of purpose. And the Lord's potter is an image used elsewhere in the Bible. For example, Isaiah 29. You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker, he didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? There the image is used to stress the difference between humans and the creator God and our dependence on our God for our very being. And that this makes our repudiation of our creator, to whom we owe everything, even the capacity to form the words in which we express our rebellion, irrational and ungrateful. And it's also used in Isaiah 45. Woe to the one who argues with his maker one clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, why are you making, what are you making? Or does your work say he has no hands? And there it's used to stress the Lord's unaccountability to us for his plans. But with any frequently used image in scripture, the issue is not how the image is used generally, but how it's used in its particular context. For common images can be used differently in different parts of Scripture. For example, when Paul speaks of the church as the body of Christ in Corinthians, he uses the image to speak of our relationship with each other in the one body. But when he speaks of the church as Christ's body in Ephesians, he uses the same image to emphasise our relationship to and dependence on Christ our head. How is the image of the potter used in Jeremiah 18? What's the point the Lord is making by this image? And how does he apply it? Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do it. At another time, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. However, if it does what is evil in my sight by not listening to me, I will relent concerning the good I had said I would do it. The Lord is making a general point here, something that's always true in his dealings in human histories, his dealings with nations and peoples. You see, the time's indefinite at one time, sometime. The nation is indefinite. It's any nation or kingdom. This is the way God acts across time with all peoples. And like the potter, the Lord's dealings are interactive, responsive to how people respond to his word, either the announcement he has made of judgment or to their habitual not listening to him. The Lord being responsive to how people respond to his word is not inconstancy, changeability in God. This change of action towards a group of people depending on how they respond to him, to his word, which they will experience as a change in God's attitudes towards them, this change of action is a consequence of God's unchanging character and purpose. Our God will be the God he has revealed himself to be, holy, righteous and just, and merciful, compassionate and gracious. <coughs> and his purpose is to have a holy people and to be glorified in both his justice and mercy in the world. 
And so he is the God who will always show mercy to the repentant and the God who will never be the God of a sinful people who cease to listen to his word, who are committed to defying him and keeping on pursuing their sin. God's sovereign freedom is to always be himself, holy, never partnering with sin, and merciful always, and always working to his good goal. So he firstly uses the image of the potter to challenge despair, to encourage turning to him in response to his word of judgment. (coughs) When God pronounces his judgment on his people, you see, there is always an implicit condition. I will uproot, tear down and destroy is the bare pronouncement, but there is always an if you will not humble yourself and repent, implied the however of verse 8. The prophet Jonah knew this, didn't he? That's why he was so reluctant to go to Nineveh. Jonah's message there contained no call to repentance, just an announcement of judgment. It's very simple, a lot shorter than this sermon. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. But when the people heard this, They humbled themselves before God and repented. They turned, it says, from their evil ways. And Jonah continues, God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with. And he didn't do it, which, of course, as we know, made Jonah furious, greatly displeased. And he prays and he said, Why? I mean, this is why I stayed in my country. This is why I fled, because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster. That God is the God who in his sovereign freedom will show mercy to the repentant, those who turn from their evil. That in the Lord's pronouncement of just judgment on our sin, there is always an invitation to repent. That we can know when we are convicted of the rightness of God's condemnation of, say, our selfishness, our lying, our greed, our using others for our own sexual pleasure or our envy. That we can know when we're convicted that even in that right condemnation there is an offer of mercy that the Lord would relent in inflicting punishment upon us if we turn to him is great good news, isn't it? It's great good news for us individually. I mean, to be brought to a place where you recognise that you have wronged God and others by doing what pleases you and are rightfully condemned to that place where you can no longer hide from yourself your idolatry of yourself or the unkindness of your words or your selfish manipulation of others, your lies and deceit or the myriad of ways by which we fail to love God and have broken God's law, to be brought to that place and at the same time to know that you justly deserve to be punished and to have no hope to just see that you have a debt you could never repay, done wrong, you could never undo, and feel trapped in that condemnation, to be brought to that place. It's miserable. 
And then to know that the word of God that condemns you is also the word that calls you to humble yourself, to seek mercy from God, and that if you do, he will relent. He will show you mercy. Well, that is great good news, isn't it? And to know that in the Lord's pronouncement of just judgment on our sin, there is always an invitation to repent is also great good news for our nation. See, as a nation, let's face it, we practice evil. It's across our screens in our papers. We lie in our public life. We have embraced sexual immorality, promoted greed. We don't give God thanks or praise for our prosperity and peace, remarkable as they are. Rather than do good to the poor, we're encouraged to squander our money on luxury and indulgence. We take innocent life, all sins, for which God condemned the nations of Canaan so that the land vomited them out. God is not just the judge of Israel or of his church. He is the just judge of all and our nation deserves judgment, not blessing from God. But we hear in Jeremiah 18 that if our nation will listen and turn from our evil ways, God will have mercy. And that is good news. An encouragement to speak and warn of God's just judgments, which we do if we faithfully share the gospel of Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. But Christians in our generation appear to have stopped doing that, stop giving that warning as if God were not the God of the whole world or had changed his mind about right or wrong or only enacted judgment at the last day and is not the righteous God who shows, it says in Psalm 7, his wrath every day. Or as if opposition to that is new and somehow should silence us. We've become silent. But the Lord's word here concerns any nation, at any time. And he is still the just judge of the world and his judgments are real in history as well as the last day. We should be concerned for the judgment that awaits our nation, our neighbours. But wonderfully, warning people of God's condemnation of sin, which is clear in scripture, whether it's of the Canaanites or of the other nations around Israel, Warning people is always an invitation to mercy for those who heed God's word. While without repentance, God's judgments are certain. We should speak. But have you ever thought of how the holy and righteous judge could have this sovereign freedom to show mercy to those on whom he justly, rightly pronounces uprooting, tearing down destruction? Well, in the end, it's because of the cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus, God reconciling the world to himself through the death of his son, bearing in himself Father, Son and Spirit the cost of forgiving our sin. The cross gives that freedom. The cross is the expression of God's freedom to be the God he is, just and merciful. And we see most clearly God's sovereign freedom to show mercy where there is no royal glory and no freedom, Jesus nailed 
to the tree. That humiliation and submission to death is the foundation for our experience of God's freedom and giving us royal pardon when we turn back to God and believe his word and the foundation of our confidence that anyone, no matter how great, how ugly their rebellion, how deserving of condemnation they are, will find mercy when they turn back to God. God uses the image of the potter at work on his wheel to challenge despair. But he also uses it to warn of the danger of presumption. At another time I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. However, if it does what is evil in my sight by not listening to me, I will relent concerning the good I had said I would do it. Presumption is where you claim to be safe with God, expect continued blessing from God while doing what's evil in God's sight, doing those things that God forbids. And you think it's safe because, oh, you have a promise or you made a decision once or like our society, you expect blessing from God to continue because you are sure of your own righteousness. Presumption for Israel was claiming that they were God's chosen nation a people who could always rely on his protection and help while worshipping idols and breaking his commandments. For believers, presumption says, I can enjoy God's favour in my own right outside of Christ, outside of living with him as my Lord. Now, because this is just the old sin, the sin that claims we can relate to God on our own terms, that we can dictate to God how he should treat us, that He should be pleased with whatever we choose to give him. Instead of what he commands, we give him. That is, our love in doing what he says. But the gospel says all the good we have is in Christ. And while we're in Christ by faith, spiritually united to him, that union is always seen in living like Christ, in bearing the fruit of the Spirit and putting sin to death. If a nation stopped listening to the Lord, then the word of building and planting is no longer a word spoken to them, a word they can hear. They should expect no blessing from God. If believers stop listening to the Lord, stop listening to the call to die to self, to serve in love, to speak the truth in love, to walk in step with the Spirit and instead give themselves to what the Lord forbids, say bitterness, anger, sexual immorality, greed, the many sins scripture speaks of, well then they should not think that word of forgiveness is spoken to them outside Christ. God is never a partner with sin. God uses the image of the potter at his will to challenge despair and to warn of presumption and both uses of the image encourage a responsible and meaningful engagement with God's word, not a fatalistic passivity where we act as if we have no choice, pretend that we have no hand in what is happening to us, in the treatment we receive from the living God, and so never engage with God's word, never engage with its summons to listen and change. See, this image of the potter says our experience of relating to God is dependent on how we respond to his word. So we have real responsibility to hear and respond, real responsibility to keep listening to God's word. And no doctrine should mask or minimise that responsibility. 
God expects us to listen and act on what he says with urgency. The image of the potter at his wheel challenges despair and presumption and encourages us to keep listening to his word. God's actions towards us change depending on how we respond to his word while his character and purpose never do. But God has given this picture to Jeremiah for a particular purpose, to make a particular application to his hearers. So now say to the men of Judah and to the residents of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I'm about to bring harm to you and make plans against you. Turn now each from your evil way and correct your ways and your deeds. God has revealed his sovereignty to Jeremiah, has proclaimed his freedom to deal with Judah, always in accord with his character and purpose, to encourage Judah rightly condemned for their sin to repent. He's revealed it to offer life and assure them that rescuing them is not beyond him if they will turn back to him. That is so gracious. But what do Jeremiah's hearers do? Well, they make judgment certain by refusing to listen. They show us what not to do when the gospel warns us that there's a day in which God will judge the world of each each one of us righteously. What not to do when we are rebuked from God's word for our sin. But they'll say it's hopeless. We'll continue to follow our plans and each of us will continue to act according to the stubbornness of his heart. They are defiant. Turn. God says, and they say, no way, it's pointless because we are going to keep doing what we want to do. God, through his prophet, has personally called on them to repent, but they refuse to listen. They harden their heart because, like modern people, they are in love with their own autonomy. We will continue to follow our plans. We want our way not God's way. We want to direct our lives by our own wisdom, not live by God's word. We love our lifestyle, our opinions, our idols, our sins so much more than God. Jeremiah's here is entering the freeway the wrong way, driving down the off-ramp as fast as they can to get on They've seen the sign that says stop, wrong way, go back and they've just said what the heck. And of course such an attitude has consequences. Consequences on the freeway and consequences in our lives. Therefore this is what the Lord says. Ask among the nations who has heard Things like these. First, God points out how unnatural, how shocking their rebellion is. And and the climax is actually at the beginning of verse 15. They have forgotten me. They've forgotten the Lord, the one who loved and rescued them. He has so little role in their lives that he never comes into their minds. He's a non-entity. Do you feel the contempt of that? Imagine your child deliberately forgetting you. 
or feel the grief of the forgotten husband or wife written out of their spouse's life when their spouse moves on. But Judah has forgotten her Lord and instead served worthless idols of no ultimate value in themselves and who have only made their life more difficult, who send them off down unmade and untried paths that get them nowhere. Their sin, verse 16, has already made their land a horror, afflicted by foreign invaders, the economy disrupted, impoverished by tribute. But their proud determination will, verse 17, ensure they will face the judgment that God's declaration of judgment was seeking to rescue them from. I will scatter them before the enemy like the east wind, like a gale at sea can scatter a fleet of sailing vessels so they'll be scattered, left to run before their enemies. And instead of knowing the blessing of God's people, of seeing God's face, I will show them my back and not my face. They'll experience the opposite, have no relationship with him, be unable to access him. And when this happens, they won't be able to blame God for it. When they think of the potter at his wheel, they will know that it is their decisions that has brought this response from the Lord, the Lord who warned of certain judgment so that they'd repent. It'll be clear that this has come upon them by their stopping listening to the Lord, by their stubborn refusal to repent. Hardening your heart, refusing God's call to turn back to him has consequences. It has consequences in this life as you give yourself to what is ultimately worthless, give your love and loyalty to, well, relationships that fail or careers that ultimately you must leave or to your self-creating in defiance of your creator, to ideologies that have no power of life in them, to trust even in your own wisdom. When you give your love and loyalty to what will leave you longing and thirsty. It has consequences and it will leave you to face the judgment the gospel warns you of on the last day when the God who searches hearts and minds will give your deeds what they deserve. You know it can be a bitter thing as some of us know from experience to have to confront the ruin you have made of your life and the lives of others by your choices you know, your choice to do what seemed right to you and not what the Lord commanded, a bitter thing, to acknowledge that you have brought this on yourself because you refused to listen. Bitter but helpful. Even as God lets you face some of the consequences of your willfulness in this life, like the prodigal having to eat the pig's food, there is also, as the prodigal found, still a way back for those who come to their senses and realise it is better to be in the Father's house, better to be amongst those who turn and seek mercy by turning to the Lord Jesus. And if you do, the God who is skilled in shaping and reshaping will show mercy. He won't be at a loss to work his good purpose in your life. Jeremiah's first audience who heard the words of verses 13 to 17 and are warned of the consequences of their stubborn rebellion 
had still not faced those consequences to the full. And as we've heard in the story of the potter, there's still an opportunity to repent implicit in this warning if the people will humble themselves to take seriously what the Lord has said. But rather than do that, as you heard, they put themselves beyond God's mercy. They pass the point of no return. Certain ones said, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah for instruction will never be lost from the priest or counsel from the wise or a word from the prophet. Come, let's denounce him and pay no attention to all his words. Now this is the point of no return. See, not content with not listening to the word of God, they want to make it impossible for themselves to ever hear the word of God again by removing Jeremiah from the scene. They are intent intent on scheming against Jeremiah, bringing false charges against him and silencing him, verse 23, by their deadly plots. You see, they think they have no need for the word Jeremiah speaks, this uncomfortable word of judgment. For things they're sure will always continue as they are. Instruction never lost from the priest, counsel from the wise, or a word from the prophet. The prophets, priests and the wise, they're the elite of society entrenched in the government. And so they're saying they're content with their own guidance and insight, complacent with their own administration, and dismiss Jeremiah's words much as our own elites see no reason to listen to the word of God, believing they will always have the answers. So what will happen to those who, in attempting to kill the prophet, are attempting to kill the word of God, to create a situation where they need never hear it again? Well, God's answer to those who want to shut themselves off from the word of judgment and so also from the word of mercy, his answer to those who are determined to stop listening to him, is Jeremiah's prayer. Now, as you heard, there are some pretty hard things in Jeremiah's prayer. But as you listen, recognise that while it's right for Jeremiah to pray this, and we'll see why, it is not a model for us. So Jeremiah starts by characterising his opponent's behaviour as he calls out to the Lord, should good be repaid with evil? They are ungratefully rejecting the good, treating Jeremiah as their enemy when in his ministry of the word and prayer he's actually been their friend, seeking their good, their life. And so he now prays that the judgment God has already revealed in his words, God would now bring upon them. And it is hard to hear this because it's not beyond our imaginations that these kinds of things, these kinds of things can happen in our world. Hand their children over to famine and give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed, their husbands slain by a deadly disease, their young men struck down by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring raiders against them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. But you, Lord, Know all their deadly plots against me. Do not wipe out their iniquity. Do not blot out their sin before you. Let them be forced to stumble before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. See, Jeremiah's prayer is the word of the Lord. 
And he's asking God to act justly in executing the judgment he has pronounced. And when he says, don't wipe out their iniquity, do not blot out their sin before you, Jeremiah is asking God to be faithful to his word. See, for those who have decisively rejected the word Jeremiah preached, God in Jeremiah's words, these words, is making it clear that there is no other word, no other way of finding forgiveness. It's only by believing the word the Lord has sent that forgiveness may be found. And where that word is knowingly repudiated, where people are determined to violently and finally silence that word, there can be no forgiveness. And that's still the case today. Where you turn your back knowingly on the Lord Jesus, there'll be nowhere else to find forgiveness. Jeremiah's prayer is right for Jeremiah, for it tells his hearers and us that you can put yourself in a place where there is no forgiveness to be found, and you do that by finally repudiating the one who brings the word of grace. That's what Jeremiah's hearers were doing in their self-confident determination to destroy Jeremiah. It's what the Jewish rulers were doing in the, in the time of Jesus, in killing Jesus, and so ensuring their own destruction. It is actually what we can do in our own day, where we knowingly are determined to silence Jesus in our lives by having once confessed him, denying that Jesus is Lord, labelling his truth as a lie. For if you deny the only place you can find forgiveness, where can forgiveness be found? So hear Jeremiah's warning and pray that none of us would come to so hate the word that pronounces judgment on the sins we love. None of us would come to so hate the word that we throw it away from us, that we break with it completely. But while Jeremiah's right, prayer is right for Jeremiah, <coughs> it is not a model for us when we face opposition and rejection in opposing us. People are not knowingly denying Jesus, they're just opposing us. Better we pray like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Better we be like our Lord in loving our enemies and praying for those who hate us, praying particularly that the Lord would open their eyes and see, to see Jesus' glory and grant them repentance. So how do you see the sovereign freedom of the living God to respond to people's response to his word in ways that are always true to his character and good purpose. The freedom of the living God to shape and reshape the history of nations and peoples as they listen or stop listening to his word. Threat or hope? Well, it is a threat, isn't it? If you want to claim to be safe with God, someone who's right with God, yet want to stop listening to his word, to do what you want to do, to follow your own desires, to give your loyalty and love to some idol, some created thing instead of your creator, to give your creator your loyalty by listening to his son and doing what he says. If you do that, 
the Lord will let you experience the consequences of that, the consequences of forgetting him now. For example, it might be you choose to give your loyalty and love to achievement, whether it's intellectual or sporting or in your career. And then one day you're injured. You find yourself passed over or let go and you're left empty, uncertain who you are. Or maybe you choose to repudiate his good teaching on sexuality, to claim an identity in a sexuality or pursue a relationship outside his word and he lets you experience the grief and loneliness of uncommitted, unstable relationships. Or perhaps he even lets you achieve all you want only to find that it is all vanity, insubstantial. When that happens, you won't be able to complain. It's your refusal to listen to him that's brought misery and complexity and emptiness into your life and you've been warned. But when it happens, and I pray it never happens, but when it happens, no, you will have a choice then. Maybe it's even the choice confronting you now. You can choose like the prodigal to turn back by believing what God says about himself in his word in the gospel of Jesus, that he will forgive and welcome home all who trust the Lord Jesus and find then the sovereign God whose rule you resented is the one who is free to be better, more generous, more merciful than you thought the God who has not finished shaping your life for good. Or you can choose like Jeremiah's opponents to try and silence the word that nags you, that says you're reaping what you sow, that warns you of final judgment, to silence that word because you love and trust yourself and your sins. And so make your judgment certain. God's sovereign freedom is a threat to those who think they can enjoy the blessings that come from God while not listening to the living God, not listening to his son, a threat to those who think they can live as if God's not involved in their lives. For he is the potter, always shaping in response to our response to him. Threat or hope, because there is hope in knowing the potter, isn't there? Hope in his freedom to show mercy even to those upon whom he pronounces his just judgment. Hope for you, if you can, like the people of Nineveh, admit the truth of his judgment, that the wrong you have done deserves just punishment, that there's nothing you can do to justify yourself and you then turn from your sin to God by turning to his son Jesus, whom he has made Lord, the ruler of all, turning to him for the mercy and the forgiveness he will certainly give. Hope if you'll turn to him. Hope if having started following the Lord Jesus, you continue to listen to his word, the means by which God gives us life. Oh, yes, and even hope for our nation, who at the moment seem determined to live in defiance of God's law and trust their own wisdom. Hope if they hear that word of just judgment on their sin. For in that word there is always mercy for those who turn back to the Lord and we shouldn't be embarrassed about it. See, God may yet be merciful 
But they, our nation, our neighbours, have to hear what the gospel says, that the wrath of God is even now being poured out on those who suppress the truth of God for lies and worship and serve idols instead of the living creator experienced in us being given up to our folly. And that there is a day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed and he will repay each one according to what they have done. They need to hear that word. Oh yes, like Jeremiah, the love that speaks that word may receive evil for good at times. But those who know the merciful God, who knows that he warns to turn us back to him, to give us life, those who know that love that sees he has purchased his freedom to be himself just and merciful in the death of his son, know that love must still speak. For the Lord says, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent. And isn't that good news? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy that we would not be those who listen and harden our hearts because we just love our sin. We love running our own lives, our own way, and we don't want to listen. Our Father, we pray that would not be us. But in your great mercy, you would make us those who hear your word, who heed its warning and turn to you for mercy when we sin. You would make us those who keep hearing your word, your good gospel word. And in hearing your word, through your spirit, come more and more to live the lives of your people, the life which is truly blessed. And Father, we pray, hearing your word, and knowing that you are a God who delights to show mercy, we would not be silenced, but we would speak of judgment, your just judgment on sin now and the judgment that's to come so that people would turn to the Lord Jesus and find, as we have found, life and hope in him. We ask this in Jesus' name.